Are you ready for the next step? Is it time to pursue your doctorate? Northwind Theological Seminary offers a fully online doctoral program to help you move ahead. This DTM, Doctorate in Theology and Ministry, centers on issues in open and relational theology. World-renowned theologian Thomas J. Ord directs this program. You'd work directly with Dr. Ord to explore open and relational topics that interest you. As a fully online startup institution, Northwind's doctoral program is far less expensive than other programs. Scholarships are also available. As a doctoral student, you set your own pace. You can work around your personal, family, or work schedules, and you'll likely finish the degree in less than three years. The Doctorate in Theology and Ministry is co-sponsored by the Center for Open and Relational Theology, which Dr. Ord directs. You'll have access to Center's resources and get to know its community of scholars, activists, practitioners, and educators. For more information, see the seminary website or search Open and Relational Theology at Northwind. It's time to pursue your doctoral degree. Reach out to Northwind now. friends welcome back to redrawing the bath as always this is your host chris Harmon, and today i have the special opportunity to welcome back to the show thomas j ord thomas thank you so much for being on the show with us today hey it's my pleasure i i enjoy talking with you chris the the feeling is mutual thomas um just to kind of start right off the bat because there's so much that we could talk about uh we talked a little bit before we started recording about a question I had for you and possibly, I mean, I don't know how to put it in a, in a positive way, uh, but not murky, but kind of meshing of worlds of anytime I've seen a conversation about process theology, I'll hear your name come up. And I know that you uh, focus on open and relational theology. And so I'd love for me and for my listeners, if you would just take a moment to just distinguish the two. Yeah, that's a really good question in part because there is a lot of confusion about, you know, what's what and what's the essential or the core ideas in each. And um, we could probably do five podcasts <laughs> exploring the details. <laughs> but the way I, I like to think of it like this. Um, the phrase open and relational is an umbrella under which there are a variety of theologies and process theology is one of the varieties under uh, open relational. Hmm. So by open relational, I think a person is committed to two basic ideas. The relational idea is the idea that uh, God is a relational being. God is affected by what we do is influenced by us and the world. Um, that's a, an idea that I think a lot of Christians embrace, but it's not an idea that a lot of theologians in Christian history have embraced. Uh, Augustine, Aquinas, uh, Calvin, they were not relational theologians. So mm. the relational idea is that we have an influence on God's experience because God is relational. 
The open idea is the idea that the future is open. It's not yet determined. It's not yet settled. In fact, open theists think that even God can't know with absolute certainty everything that's going to happen in the future because the future hasn't yet been decided. There's freedom that free creatures help decide what the future is going to be, etc. And uh, so... Openness has to do with God's relation to time in the future. And most people in open relational thinking believe that this fits the biblical idea of a God who is uh, responding to what's happening in the world, who, who makes covenants. It doesn't sound like God knows exactly how the covenant's going to play out. Uh, I could cite like more than 30 instances of God repenting in the Bible, which sounds like a change of plans. And mm-hmm. so open and relational folks want to affirm at least those two ideas, that God is relational, the future is open for God and the world. They usually also emphasize God's love, uh, talk about creaturely freedom and maybe other sort of agency amongst other creatures. So there's sort of a lot of a family of ideas. Um, process theology comes in a lot of different forms. So under that broad umbrella of open relational thought, process theology has a variety of manifestations, a variety of versions. And it's really hard to kind of pick out what the essence of process theology is. Mm. Um, In fact, um, John Cobb, who's probably the most well-known process theologian alive today, he says that there is no essential idea or essential doctrine in process theology Whereas his good friend and partner uh, in the leading the Center for, uh, for Process Studies for many years, a guy named David Griffin, he lists out, it's either 10 or 12 core doctrines of process. So mm-hmm. even amongst leading figures, there's a pretty big difference in the view of what's sort of the essential to process thinking. Mm. So uh, I myself... I use the phrase open relational to talk about my ideas. Some people call me process. Some people don't. I don't really fight people over that. Mm. Um, I've most of the time I don't call myself a process theologian because of the variety and the confusion that's surrounding that. But, uh, you know, I don't get offended if someone calls me a process theologian. Mm. Yeah, may, maybe it's just the the dualistic side of me, but sometimes I'll I'll see people that are mentioned in the process camp and I'm like, wait, you guys are you guys don't believe the same thing. How can you be in the <laughs> same camp? Right, um, right. But yeah, yeah, let me take a really big idea. Uh, yeah, kind of the two major philosophical figures in 20th century process thought: a guy named Alfred North Whitehead and Charles Hartshorn. Mm-hmm. Um, Hartzorn did not believe in life after death and Whitehead was kind of ambiguous on it. Hmm. And yet I, and well, John Cobb is a process theologian. He affirms it. So, you know, if you ask the question, what does process theology say about life after death? You get a variety of answers from people (laughs) who call themselves process theologians. So yeah, it's, it's pretty big diversity. Yeah, we're we're not in Calvinism anymore. We're, there's a lot of <laughs> a lot of room to to wiggle. Yeah, yep. That's a that's another interesting question that I'd I'd love to ask you because I I saw we're we're in some similar groups, but uh, it's interesting having grown up a Calvinist and having kind of 
walked away from that kind of thinking about man and God and, and all those ideas, there was a, uh, a, someone put up the question, what do you think of Calvinism? And there was all of this, um, there was all of this kind of vitriol, which I think it's a lot of it's fair. Um, but you said something where you said that it in, in essence, it's a, oh, what was the word that you used? It's a coherent theology. And so I'm interested to, to hear your thoughts. I mean, as, as someone who's kind of, a lot of the Calvinists have talked about open theism and open and relational theology and process theology. And they're all like, this is of the devil. Like, don't listen. Um, I, I'd love for you to expound on that. Cause I think something that's so important is that attitude of like at, at the bottom, like this, it, it makes sense why people believe this. Cause the last thing that I want for myself or for anyone listening or for anyone in the deconstruction kind of area is to just kind of become what they were hurt by in the first place, which was yeah. just fundamentalism. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Uh, earlier, you know, we talked about uh, Calvinism and I think you said something about there not being a lot of diversity. And I think you're right compared to process thought, mm. uh, but there is some diversity. Uh, you know, I know Calvinists who have different views on eternal security, et cetera. But one of the things that I find attractive about Calvinism, at least as it's espoused by some of its major opponents, is that they've really tried to take seriously the idea that the ideas about God and creation and et cetera, they need to be coherent and consistent and, and um, you know, non-contradictory. Mm. And I think that's important um, I, what makes me not a Calvinist in part is that I think they start from the wrong view of God's power. Mm. So if you, if you start from the idea that God has the kind of capacity to control, um, and you're easily led in the direction of a Calvinist view of predestination and, and eternal security and all those kinds of things. You don't have to go that way, but you mm. can have a really nice, consistent, rational system with that particular view of God's power. Now, what some people will do in response to that is, you know, say, hold on a second. A God who determined, predetermines everything, who decides some are going to go to hell and some are going to go to heaven, even though they haven't yet been born and, you know, all this sort of stuff. They say that makes no sense with a, a God of love. So therefore, I want to emphasize God's love. And of course, I'm totally on board with that argument. But a lot of folks who emphasize God's love don't have a very consistent love theology. Like mm. they like they like the God who loves, but they kind of they retain in the back of their theology the idea that God could control, and uh, then that kind of gets them in real, you know, difficult situations when they're arguing. They'll say things like, "Well, you know, God loves us, but God could choose not to love us." Well, if that's the case, then is God's nature love? Uh, how do we know when God isn't loving us? Uh, or they'll say something like, well, God gives us freedom and allows evil to happen. God doesn't cause it, but God allows it. But that creates all kinds of problems because, you know, wouldn't a loving God who could stop evil prevent it instead of allowing it? So anyway. It's kind of a long answer to your good question, uh, but the short of it is I appreciate the consistency 
many Calvinists have. I just think they start from the wrong beginning point. Mm. Yeah, no, that's, yeah, it, it's, uh, it, it's interesting walking away from a view like that of everything was so cookie, not cookie cutter, because that, that implies that it's not thought through and that it's rudimentary. And to be fair, there are a lot of really smart people that are Calvinists and I'm yeah. fortunate to know a few, but it's very it's very concise and and that was comfortable and that was really nice and i don't say that in like a condescending way um but it was so it was so com- it was so comfortable to to have a, a theology that was so five point like this is what it is sorry like we we don't really have to talk about anything outside of that as far as uh soteriology goes yeah yeah I think that that a lot of Cal, well, John Calvin called his doctrine of predestination a comforting doctrine, mm. and a lot of people in that tradition find those views very safe, makes them feel secure. You know, there's nothing they can do to get them out of God's grace, and nothing they can do to get in God's grace. Their their decisions don't ultimately make a difference because God is in control, and so. They at least some of people find that a very, you know, uh, comfortable position. I don't, mm-hmm. <laughs> and most yeah. victims of evil I know end up walking away from that view of God. But mm-hmm. uh, I can understand why it would be attractive in one sense. Yeah, to to kind of segue into into the bigger conversation, um, it, it's interesting when you have someone like a like a Calvinist or even just an evangelical, especially in these current moments with with coronavirus and, and Black Lives Matter and, and all of these big global issues or even the the whatever just happened in Lebanon. Um, it'll be interesting to see as that kind of unfolds. But as we see these big issues and, and people being hurt and people uh, being neglected or mistreated or abused, uh, it, it seems like the common rhetoric would be, well, Oh, the the response is is prayer the response is uh repentance the response is um being uh like being holier or or making holy contrition and and it's an interesting problem that i see because it's it's this idea because oh only god can can change our hearts only god can uh change these circumstances and so i'm i'd love to hear within your theology how that kind of works like can can god change us and that's that's a really loaded statement but like how how does sanctification work yeah well like you i sometimes come across people who respond to the pandemic by saying um by saying that we need to repent and some will even go so far as to say the pandemic is God's judgment or God's punishment. And they'll mm-hmm. cite some, you know, moral evil, at least evil in their minds. It's, and say, you know, this is God's, uh, God's vengeance or justice or God's retribution for something that we've done. I'm not in the business of believing that God causes evil like the pandemic, even mm-hmm. allows evil like the pandemic. I don't think God 
could prevent it single-handedly, but it's just like saying, well, I'm just going to let this thing run its course and see who gets wasted and, you know, who all the problems it's going to cause. I don't believe in that God. I don't even believe in a God who punishes. Now, I do, however, think there are natural negative consequences that come from sin and also natural negative consequences that come from natural phenomenon, accidents, things that go awry in nature. Uh, in relation to this particular pandemic, uh, it's prompted me to do more research on the status and contribution that viruses make in the world. Uh, I used to think that a virus was like almost like inherently evil, <laughs> yeah. like no such thing as a good virus. But the material I've been reading says that more than 99% of viruses in the world are doing good things. They're contributing to species diversity and et cetera, et cetera. It's only in the rare situation do we have a virus that uh, ends up doing evil in the world, causing widespread harm. And that's what we have with COVID-19. Mm -hmm. So the question is, why doesn't God prevent it? Why doesn't God stop it? Um, and my view says God can't do it single-handedly, but calls upon us and others in creation to work against it to try to prevent it. So the work that's being done in terms of uh, scientists who are looking for a vaccine is, I think, inspired by God. Uh, the efforts that are being made by people to wear masks and do social distancing and all the things we're trying to do to, to prevent the spread of this virus, I think are are um, inspired by God. So I think God's active working through creation. I even think God is directly active with the virus in whatever ways God can be to uh, persuade it, lure it, direct it away from harm. But God can't in any instance from the smallest to the most complex like you and me absolutely control what's going on. Hmm. So then what does that do as far as the, from the smallest bits of control, what does that, like when, for instance, when I was 15, I read a book called Fight by a, a theologian named Preston Sprinkle. And it was all about nonviolence and kind of anti-nationalism. And from then on, my world, I, I went from being a very ultra conservative kid growing up in a very ultra conservative bubble to realizing oh my goodness the world is is much much bigger than mm. i could have ever thought it was and it, it changed the way and and that's a really small kind of temporal thing but it, it really does change the way that you view the kingdom of heaven it changes the way that you view uh christ as as king um it, it to to kind of reject that american christian narrative changes your theology and some yeah. would call that sanctification and some would call that the, the spirit moving in you. So I guess the, the question then would be, what, what does it mean for the spirit to change someone's heart? Before we started chatting, you were talking about uh, your wife. I don't remember. Did you tell me her? What's her first name? Abby. Abby. Let's suppose that um, after this interview, you go home and... Um, Let's suppose that Abby, oh, what would be something she could do? Um, you, it turns out you found out she told you a lie. 
that instead of walking the dog like she was earlier, she was actually going down to get ice cream, even though she's been trying not to eat ice cream. I'm just making something up here off the top of my head. But let's say she's yeah. on a diet and you guys have made a pledge to each other not to eat ice cream. And uh, she took the dog out really to get ice cream and lied to you. Now, how are you going to respond to that? Well, here's one option. What if you kill her and annihilate her? What if you absolutely destroy her because she's done something uh, wrong? She's lied. If you did that, of course, everyone would think you were nuts. You, they would think the punishment doesn't fit the crime. You would think people would think that you're not a loving person. But now let's imagine how we think about people, creatures, viruses that cause evil in the world. Do we destroy them or do we work with them to try to heal them? Mm. I think a lot of people have problems with destroying other people like who lie to them. Maybe they don't have problems destroying, you know, evil dictators like Adolf Hitler, but they, they're going to set some boundaries. Uh, they also some people have a hard time destroying animals or other creatures, but viruses, you know, let's destroy viruses. What if? What if God's love is not in the destruction business, but is in the healing business? What if God wants to heal everyone and everything top to bottom through uncontrolling love? And what if God calls upon us to join in that activity? That would mean we wouldn't be in the business of trying to absolutely destroy people, whether or not they're just liars like Abby or hardened criminals. We wouldn't be in the business of, you know, trying to eliminate uh, species, etc. We'd be in the business of trying to figure out what God is up to in healing all of creation from the most complex to the least. So then who who is it that, that spurs change in, in one's heart then? I think God does. I think God is the source of all that's good, beautiful, and truthful in the world. I don't think you and I can do anything good at all without God first acting and making our love possible. So mm -hmm. I'm, I'm totally against the idea that somehow humans have to do all the work and you know, God's on the sidelines. But I'm also totally against the idea that God does all the work and we're on the sidelines. The relational vision I'm proposing has God acting first to empower and inspire, but always requiring some kind of cooperation or response. Hmm. That's a great way of, of thinking about it in the sense that so much of, of what happens within kind of the upbringing I had is that that is the idea that nothing good can come outside of what God is, the love that God is acting activated inside of us but it, it really leads to a kind of uh physical and a spiritual apathy towards the world around us i, I think it, especially right now with everything going on with people like george floyd and brianna taylor and all of these these big problems and and even just there was a, a pastor in my hometown who just announced today that he's going to be in civil disobedience against the uh the closure in california um, for churches that he's going to keep gathering. And I think they have probably about a thousand people in their church, but he's basically stepped up and said that I'm not doing it. But you see these, 
issues. And it's like, well, why, why do you not see a physical and spiritual response or both? I, I think in a lot of ways, they're one in the same, but why don't you see the, the physical and spiritual responsibility you have to your brother as a part of sanctification, as a part of what God wants to do in the world? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I can imagine the answer this person would give, and it would probably have to do with a God who can control everything, who uh, if God wants to keep us from getting sick from the virus, God will. But if God doesn't, then we'll all get sick. We're Mm -hmm. just going to obey God's commands to not forsake the gathering together of one another. That's probably how that person would respond. It's mm-hmm. not a response I find attractive or or, or even uh, very reasonable, but um, that's that's the consistency I think of that position that begins with the notion of controlling power, and then combines that with a particular idea of how we should obey God no matter what any sort of circumstances and this obedience is usually framed or couched in a particular way of reading the Bible. Mm. Yeah. Well, well, that's what I appreciate so much about open theology is that even though, like you said earlier, that we can't, we, we don't do any good outside of the, the love that God has activated in us, that anything good comes from him. Um, but the, it also places the onus on us. It, it really gives right. us the responsibility of, okay, like now go and do likewise, which is, I mean, it, it's kind of the command. It's the, you'll do greater things. Now go do them. But Exactly. I think open theism fits the Bible so, so, so well. Mm. Uh, you know, it's funny because I, I can remember a time very early in my life in which I was kind of attracted to a Calvinist vision. I didn't grow up in that tradition. I grew up in the Church of the Nazarene, which is a part of the Wesleyan tradition. Mm-hmm. But... Um, I remember being kind of exposed to that idea and presented with only two options. Either God was the source and total only person doing anything good in the world because you and I were, you know, rotten sinners, totally depraved, going to hell because there's nothing good that could come from us. Or the other idea was, well, Creatures, humans, they must do it all on their own. They're, they must be inherently good. And like, so I had to, I had to make a choice in that <laughs> perspective. Either all the good comes from humans and God is sort of twiddling his thumbs or everything good is only from God and humans are just, you know, passive tools or, um, you know, um, um, tubes through which God loves and there's another view that openness folks say, which say, yeah, God is a necessary cause for all that's good in the world, but we also must play a role. And I go so far as to even say that God can't get all the goods that God wants. God, love can't win in the way God wants it to unless creatures cooperate with God's loving activity. Hmm. Yeah, but that's that's the big problem that I'm seeing. And honestly, that's why I've kind of left that that Calvinist mindset for a more open theistic uh, viewpoint is because I I do. And it's uh, it's funny because I I think it was Greg Boyd was was talking about 
when John Piper sat him down and said that you, I, he said something along the lines of, I believe you're one of the most uh, dangerous things for the church because your theology is so concise. Like it makes so much sense. Yes. And I, when I heard that, I was like, why, if it makes sense, then, then why are you sitting here saying it's dangerous? <laughs> like if it, if it fits the bill, then what are you going to do? So yep. I, I'd love to ask you, why do you think so? If, cause it does. And, and that's the problem is, and I don't say this as if I read it objectively, but when I hear people say, oh, well, it just doesn't fit the bill. It's like, well, then you're reading it wrong because there's nothing there. Anytime I read it now, I can't not see it. And so yeah. why do you think there's so many faith leaders that are so interested in, in making people think that this is some kind of satanic heresy? Well, again, I think it goes back to your fundamental starting point. If your fundamental starting point is based on God's controlling power, then any vision that goes against that you think is going to be uh, harmful. Mm. And especially, even if that vision fits with the way we live our lives, the way we experience the world, which you're right, open theology fits it so well. Even if it goes against that, the those who start with a, uh, sovereignty of God's starting point, by which they usually mean God can control and often does, then any sort of other vision is going to be inherently in conflict with that. Hmm. You know, I, I do a lot of speak. Well, before the pandemic, I was doing a lot of speaking in universities and graduate schools and churches and seminaries and, you know, et cetera. And just about every time I speak and, someone will come up to me afterwards and they'll have heard me talk about basically an open and relational view of God. And they'll say something like this, you know, this idea of God you've been presenting, it fits so well with the way I've been thinking. I didn't, I thought I was the only one, or they'll say, I've never had the kind of words to express this view well until I heard you, or, you know, basically it's the idea that it fits their experience. And I think that's really a powerful um, uh, point, an advantage for open theology. Hmm. Yeah, no, I, that's what, yeah, there's so many places. I, I think it's probably the reason I'm so flustered about it is because it's so present in my head all the time. Like I'll, I'll find myself in conversations where I'm like, why do you not, why do you not see what I'm seeing? But I think one of the big problems that I'm really seeing is when, when I was in, in that uh, theology, when I, when I really did adhere to that theology, I think one of the problems was the quote unquote open theists that I, I came across didn't actually know what they thought. It was always yeah. kind of this like, Oh, I don't know if it was just to be edgy or if it was just to be rebellious, but it was, or if it was just, they were, they didn't fully understand what they were saying they believed. And I'd, that's not me saying that I fully understand it, but it, it kind of really did seem like there was a, there was kind of this representative straw man where a lot of people yeah. were adhering to this theology while only holding these talking points that really at the end of the day, didn't, couldn't really stand up against anything. And so from you, I'd, I'd love to hear uh, what are some of the key tenets of, of open and relational theology? Well, the one I mentioned earlier, and that's about God's relation to time and the future. Um, that's how this word openness or open 
kind of made its mark uh, back in, well, earlier it was a guy named Richard Rice who wrote a little book uh, called The Open View of God. And then in 1994, there was a book that came out that was co-authored by five theologians, Clark Pinnock, Richard Rice, John Sanders, David Basinger, and, and um, Bill Hasker. Actually, the last two are philosophers. But, um, and it was called The Openness of God. And what they were trying to show is that if you really thought that God experiences time moment by moment, such that the past is really past for God and the future is really future for God, and God can't know with absolute certainty what's going to happen in the future. This could make so much better sense of the scripture, so much better sense of our own lives. Um, and so I think that's at least at the core of open theology. Again, I earlier referred to this relational aspect of God. Uh, I think openness folks want to emphasize God's love. They have some differing views on love. So, you know, it's not everybody on the same camp. Um, I think in general, though, there's another idea that open theologians affirm that doesn't get noticed very often. And it's the idea that we should take biblical language about God being personal very seriously, mm. that God truly is uh, a, like a loving parent. Um, if you follow your the Calvinist and the Thomist, uh, uh, Thomas Aquinas follower very carefully, you'll quickly find that they're willing to set aside a lot of that personal kind of language because it implies that God can be affected by us, that God is in, engaged in giving and receiving relationship. And I think the, the majority of the biblical portraits of God present God in a very giving and receiving personal kind of way. And that's central to open theology. Hmm. Yeah. It's, it's a confusing world, I guess, that we're in kind of just in general. I, I think I was reading and I think it was Barna the other day. It was talking about how this, this kind of, I, I mean, I don't know what the title would be for it, but kind of this new emergent church, um, kind of this return to more ancient ways of thinking, but also discovering some new ways to to believe and to think and to act and to to worship in some ways. It's it's the fastest growing group in American Christianity today. Really, um, I, I think I think it was Barna. I don't know where I heard that. It might have just been like in one year out the other on some podcast I was listening to. Um, yeah. But I, I did hear, I, I remember hearing that statistic. And if I'm wrong, if anyone's listening, say, hey, you're wrong. And I'll apologize or something. Um, but it is a very fast growing group of people. And it's very diverse. It's, it's very all over the place. And, and I'm, I'd be interested to hear uh, from, from someone who is theologically inclined and trained, but also I would consider someone who, whose work can bring a lot of healing to a lot of people, um, both as victims of suffering and as um, people who believed in a very hard hearted God um, and sometimes cruel and vindictive God. Oh, I would, I would really just like to, to give you the floor to just say whatever you think 
needs to be said about, I mean, just the moment that we're in of socially, religiously, with the election right around the corner, with COVID, with uh, the protests, with all of it. Um, what do we do? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting moment, isn't it? I mean, just about everybody in any moment in history will talk about the unrest, the uncertainty, the chaos, um, and they'll always be true because that'll always be a part of our reality. But sometimes it seems more intense than others. And it seems like we're at that place right now. There's a lot of social um, change going on. Mm. And it's difficult. We never know where things are going to go for sure in the future. But right now, it, it seems even murkier than ever. Um, we have people in power who want to hold to certain visions of what the good life is and other people, especially those at the margins and those who aren't living good lives, wanting to topple that vision and restructure society from, you know, politics to policing, to churches, to uh, all kinds of structures. So um, part of me sometimes gets a little bit worried but mostly I see it as a time for opportunity, a time for the possibility of change for good. Hmm. I'm not a person who believes that change is always going to be good or always be bad. I think we have the potential to make progress, but it takes cooperation with God to make progress. Hmm. And um, so I try to look at the, the moment we're in as an opportunity to rethink some of the structures, some of the balances of power, some of the ways of thinking that we've inherited and look for something that could be better. I'm not a utopian who thinks that, you know, we're going to create the perfect world uh, if we just put our minds to it just kind of overnight. But I am a person who thinks that we can have a better world and we can do things better. And I hope that... Um, we try to be careful to do our best to usher in the new vision that will be, will be better for the common good. Hmm. And what, what do you think the common good is? In terms of like a specific example or just uh, theoretically? Well, I, th I think for, um, for the, for the first off for the church and then second off for, for the world in general. Yeah. Well, for me, love is at the center of what I think the good is going to be about. So the church, the world, atheists, it doesn't matter who you are. Um, for me, it's love that is the central uh, orienting concern. Now, mm -hmm. as a Christian, I think we have really powerful resources in Scripture and in the Christian tradition to enact that vision of love as central because we have a God who is love, who calls us to love. The greatest commandments are commandments of love. Mm. So I think, generally speaking, the church ought to be about trying to fit, discern what love looks like in our moment, in our time. And we can draw from the past in trying to figure that out, but the past is not going to give us all the insights we need. We can pray and ask God for guidance in the Holy Spirit. I think that's important. 
but I'm not going to, I'm not expecting some sort of download of information from God uh, in a kind of controlling way that'll give us all the answers we need. It's a, it's a process that involves trying to figure out the best uh, information we have from religion and science and social sciences and, you know, our daily experience, the arts, etc. In terms of the church, um, I suspect the American evangelical church is disintegrating. Hmm. It won't die out immediately. It will continue to have some structures and some people, but I don't just suspect it. The polling shows that people are leaving the evangelical expression of the faith, especially younger people. Mm. Now, what is going to replace that or will anything replace it? Will formerly former evangelicals just be, you know, secularists or will they find some new expression of spirituality? I suspect they'll find some new expression, but I'm not quite sure what that is. Mm. Um, but I think evangelicalism is uh, rapidly declining both its structures and its influence in American society. Yeah. And would you say that's, that's for the greater good then for it to, to lose that pull? Um, evangelicalism at its, as it's currently um, formatted, I think has not been very positive. Mm -hmm. I can imagine a better version of evangelicalism that I wouldn't want to see disappear, mm -hmm. but at, in its current, most of its current manifestations, I think of, of a negative influence intellectually, culturally, spiritually. Um, I don't think most evangelicals take, for instance, a very seriously climate change. And that's a huge issue. Um, mm. So, I could imagine a positive evangelicalism. It's just that I'm not seeing many expressions of positive evangelicalism right now. Yeah. Yeah. Join. Well, welcome to the club. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's a, that's a, yeah, it's a, it's an interesting world that we live in, but I'm, I'm thankful for you and, and for your work in this world. I, I like I oh, said earlier, thanks, I, I, I genuinely, I think that your, your work has helped me. And I know it's helped other people because I talk to those people all the time. Um, but I, I really do appreciate what you do. And I, I really appreciate um, just the paradigm shift that it, it's hard. It's really, really hard oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, to deconstruct and to rethink your faith, especially if you've been brought up into it. Um, and there, there are people who make that transition easier and I would list you amongst one of those people as one of those people. Um, I'm happy. I'm happy. It makes me feel honored that you'd say that. Yeah. yeah. I, I think of, uh, I think of Paul's language in Philippians when you talk about how hard it is to kind of deconstruct and reconstruct them, um, you know, at the end of his famous kenosis passage, he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling because God's at work in you both to will and to work for what is good, God's good pleasure. Mm. Um, and so I think, I think it is a matter of us working through these issues, trying to better discern what God's up to, not all alone as if we're winging it, but God is, 
I think, helping us in the process in an uncontrolling kind of way. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I, I I can't shake the idea that, that he pursues us and he, he longs for us to to be in yeah. a relationship with him. Of I'm all totally the things, with you. Of all the things I can't lose, I refuse to lose that one. Yeah, um, I agree. Well, Thomas, I know we're, we're coming close to the end of our time. Um, is there, I know that you just came out with a new book or a, a companion to, to a book. Um, is there anything else you're working on at the moment? Uh, would you like to talk about that companion or? Yeah, I'd be happy find? to. Yeah. Uh, so a, a year and a half ago or so, a book came out that I wrote called God Can't. How to Believe in God and Love After Tragedy, Abuse, and Other Evils. And it was a way of thinking about God that actually solves this big question of why there's pointless pain and unnecessary suffering and genuine evil in the world by saying that God simply can't single-handedly stop evil. Well, that idea was really helpful to a lot of people, but it it sparked a lot of questions <laughs> and uh, some of the questions you've just asked me are, are some of them that it sparked uh, questions about what prayer looks like. What do miracles look like? How do we think about God as creator? What about Jesus? How can mm. we have any hope for the afterlife? And so I wrote this second book called questions and answers for God can't that chose uh, eight of the big questions I've been asked in the last year and a half and showed how you can believe that God is inherently uncontrolling and still believe in petitionary prayer and still mm. believe in miracles and still believe in life after death and etc. So um, this follow-up book is an attempt to answer the really important and good questions people are asking. And I think it simultaneously answers some issues that have prevented some people from believing in God in the first place. Let me take a, a controversial one. Uh, I know several people who don't believe in God because they believe that if a God exists, this God must send some people to hell. Um, I, in this book, talk about how I don't believe in hell if it's eternal conscious torment, but I do believe in the negative consequences that come from sin and evil. And so um, I talk about how we can talk about real afterlife and yet God not sending people to everlasting torment. Mm. Mm. So that's what that book is about. Thanks for asking. Absolutely. And, and people can find that wherever they get books or where can they find that? Yep, yeah, pretty much that okay. uh, both the books are available and, you know, Amazon and other fine booksellers. Uh, <laughs> in, where, wherever um, good books are sold. That's right. In print, <laughs> ebook, and even audiobook. Heck yeah. Well, Thomas, thank you so much for being on. There's so many you're someone I I, I love talking to cuz I I mean, it, it it's funny cuz cuz sometimes this podcast started out as as really wanting to hone in on spiritual practice um and spiritual discipline and practic practicality. And then every once in a while there are people that'll get on the line and I'm just like, okay, I have a million questions and I want all of them answered. And so I just want to say, I, I, and I've said it a couple of times over the course of this podcast, but I just really um, enjoy talking to you and I have a million more questions. So we'll have to do this again sometime soon. 
Hey, I would like that. And I enjoy talking with you, Chris. Thanks for the, uh, the opportunity. Absolutely.